Let's pray together. Father, I ask for your assistance now in opening this passage of Scripture and applying it to myself and to these friends here at Kenwood. And I pray that you would use it to save and to strengthen and to purify and to enlarge vision and to glorify Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read a few of those verses again before I make a comment. Um, Look at verse 1 of chapter 10 of Romans. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. They're not saved, right? My prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And then, for I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God. Let's just stop right there. The most stunning thing about this passage is that you can have a zeal for God and not be saved. That's the most amazing thing. And I just want that to sink in and think with you about it. So let's read it again just so that you you can see it. Verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he's talking about his, his Jewish kinsmen, where he was once upon a time. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God. So, you can have a zeal for God and not be saved. Pastors can have a zeal for God and not be saved. Churchgoers can have a zeal for God and not be saved. Lay people can have a zeal for God. Theological seminary faculty can have a zeal for God and not be saved. There is a kind of zeal that is not saving, and it's not connected with those who are saved. You can have a zeal for justice and not be saved, a zeal for social action and not be saved. I mean, if you can have a zeal for God, who's the most precious reality in the universe, how much more could you have a zeal for lesser things and not be saved? So I, I personally feel this as a very powerful warning. Here's one of the reasons. Um, the mission statement of my life and the mission statement of our church is we exist to spread a passion. And, and we all know passion's just a new modern hip word for zeal, right? We exist to spread a zeal for God in the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. So I, I live my life to spread zeal. And then Paul says to me, you can have that and not be saved, you know. So it makes you wonder if you're devoting your life to the right thing, right? I mean, you should pause at least and, and ask, well, well, what am I up 
to the right thing? Am I spending my life pursuing what I ought to be pursuing? Um, you can pour your energies into a lot of things and feel very passionate about them, very godly things, like theological education we talked about last night, and not be saved. It might be good before I, I go on to just give you a little sense of where I'm coming from. Um, I knew when I planned to come here that we were coming for a banquet last night and uh, to introduce people to a school and to talk about theological education, pastoral training. And I thought about that in relation to the morning here and your pastor, David, and you and your position in Cincinnati. And uh, that's partly what drew me to this text and partly what drew me to what I'm going to say by way of application of it. Um, I represent and advocate a real passionate pursuit of training young men in particular for the pastoral ministry. I want to see thousands of young men ignited with a passion for the Word and a passion for God and a passion for the lost and a passion for the nations. And I want to see that happen all over the country and all over the world. And I look at Cincinnati. I went online this morning to see how big you are. I don't know how many people live here. And it said 300,000 people, 295,000 people in city limits and about 2 million in the greater metro area. That's almost identical to Minneapolis, almost identical. And in Minneapolis, we have seminaries coming out of our ears. And I ask about what's the, what are the options here? And there aren't as many to, I think, put it mildly, which, which says to me that if, if I were David and I were here, I would probably, over the length of my life, be praying about that. And I would be wondering, what, what ought we to do, that, do about that as a church? Should, should everybody just have to drive two, three hours to, go to, to get a seminary education, to, to be trained in, in all phases of church ministry? Or ought there to be church-based kinds of training all throughout Cincinnati. So that's some of the background of what made me think about this, this text. Um, so I might respond here as a leader in our school, our theological education school. Well, I suppose we may as well devote ourselves to something besides zeal and passion because you can go to hell and have zeal and passion. That's what Paul says here. And so why would, why would you want to give yourself to spreading a passion for the, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God when, when you can have that and be lost? So let's, let's not do that, we might say. Let's not do that. Let's spread something else. Now, here's the problem with inferring that from what Paul says. The New Testament not only says that you can have a zeal and not be saved, it also says you cannot be saved without a zeal for God. Let me give you a few texts, see what you think. Revelation 3.16 Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, Because you are lukewarm, 
neither hot, neither cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. God is not into moderate. He's not into middle-of-the-road devotion to Jesus, right? Zeal is important. Caring deeply about God, not moderately caring about God, is important. Here's another one. Romans 12, 11. Never flag in zeal. Be aglow with the Spirit. That word for be aglow, kind of a funny translation, um, means boil. We get the word fervent from fervens in Latin, which means boil. So if you're a fervent person, your spirit is alive, it's quickened, it's boiling for something. And God ought to be the big boil in your life. Or here's another one. 1 Corinthians 16.22, the last thing Paul says to the church in Corinth is, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. It doesn't say, if anyone does not believe the Lord, let him be accursed, though that would be true. And it doesn't say, if anyone has not received the Lord, let him be accursed, though that would be true. It doesn't say, if anyone has not made a decision for the Lord, though that would tr- be true, you've got to decide for Jesus. It says, anyone who doesn't love him, be damned. Those are strong words to talk about love. I get the impression zeal might matter. Or here's another one. Jesus seemed to always be reaching for language that um, provoked zeal for him and his Father. For example, he who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, Luke 14.33, or When men persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely, rejoice in that day. Be glad. Great is your reward in heaven. So you got people beating up on you, slandering you, lying about you. Be happy. I mean, that's weird. (laughs) Wonderfully weird. The kind of people the world desperately needs in Cincinnati. Weird people who rejoice in God when people are against them. There's got to be something going on in here for that to happen that's really real. Call it zeal. Or better to gouge out your eye and go to heaven than to keep your eye for lust and go to hell, Matthew 5, 29. So it not only says in Romans, you can have a zeal for God and be lost, It also says you can't be saved. You can't be a follower of Jesus and be an indifferent person toward him. You've got to have zeal. It really matters. It's not optional. It's not an elective in in the curriculum. So, what are we to make of verses 1 and 2 of Romans 10? 
My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is, is that they may be saved, meaning they're not, because I bear them witness they have a zeal for God. Okay, so let's just finish the verse now. But that zeal is not according to knowledge. It's not in accordance with knowledge. So there's a zeal that is... Um, not a saving zeal. There's a zeal that is part of being saved. And the one is not according to knowledge, and the other is according to knowledge, which bumps up knowledge through the heavens for me. If, if my beloved kinsmen that I want so bad to be saved are not saved because their zeal doesn't accord with knowledge, then knowledge is massively important. It's just huge, right? Their zeal doesn't accord with knowledge. That's their problem. This is really, really important if you care about raising kids. You're going to bring your kids up to have that knowledge or not, if you're a pastor, it matters. If you're a Sunday school teacher, it matters. If you're a small group leader, it matters. If you're a seminary teacher, it matters. There is a zeal that doesn't accord with knowledge. Oh, they got all kinds of knowledge, and it's leading them straight to hell. They don't have the knowledge that would evidently turn their zeal into a zeal of the saved and not a zeal of the lost. Something's missing. So this knowledge really, really matters, and now he explains to us what it is. This is verse 3. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Verse 3, for not knowing. So here's what they miss. Not knowing God's righteousness. And instead seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So there are three parts to the explanation of their ignorance. So not knowing, that's their ignorance. And then here's, here's their, what they don't know, the righteousness of God. And the two ways that they are Responding to it that indicates their ignorance is they're not submitting to it. You see that at the end of the verse? They don't subject themselves to that righteousness that they don't know. They're in rebellion against it. They don't submit to it. And the other piece is they're trying to therefore establish their own. So if you don't understand and don't have knowledge of God's righteousness, you devote your life to getting righteousness. Now, at this point, I think his, his Pharisee unsaved friends would say, Paul, you do us all wrong. You do us all wrong here. <laughs> of course we're submitted to God's righteousness. And we, that's why we try to be righteous. I mean, we know the law. And God, that's an expression of God's righteousness. 
and we're devoting ourselves to being, yes, of course we're trying to establish our righteousness. Whose righteousness should we try to establish? Yours? I mean, yes, we're trying to be righteous. We're keeping the law. I mean, Paul knew these people. He was one, right? Philippians chapter 3, circumcised on the eighth day. People of, of the people of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, blameless, as to zeal, a zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul knew what it was to keep the law. He knew what righteousness was, keep the law. He knew what it was to build up your righteousness by working hard to keep the law. And what he's saying here is, People who live like that are in rebellion against God. I mean, this is staggering. It's relevant for, for legalistic Christians. It's relevant for Jews. It's relevant for Muslims. It's relevant for Buddhists and Hindus. I mean, everybody all over the world today has a zeal for God. They're all lost because this is how they're relating to it. We, we, we know his righteousness. Allah is righteous, and the God of the Old Testament is righteous, and your God that you grew up with was righteous, and he's told you some things to do. You're going to do those things, and that's how you're going to relate to him. And Paul says, if you try, your zeal will not accord with knowledge, and it will be in rebellion against his righteousness, and it will, it will lead you straight to destruction. I think that's what they would have said, these adversaries. And what, what's the problem? The, the problem is that God's righteousness is, is a gift, right? It's a free gift to be received by faith. Verse 4. There are different translations for verse 4. Um, here's m- mine. Um, for the goal of the law is Christ for righteousness for those who believe. The goal or the end or the culmination, aim of the law, of, of, of the law is Christ for righteousness for those who believe. When, when Jesus came into the world, He came to offer a righteousness that is different from the establishment of your own, right? Not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from law, but the righteousness which comes from faith in Christ, Philippians 3, 9. Or back up to verses 30 and 31 and 32 of chapter 9 of of Romans, where why didn't they attain righteousness? They pursued it as though it were by works. They stumble over the stone, and the stone is Jesus for righteousness. And so the answer for why their zeal was not a saving zeal, why they were lost and needed saving, even though they had a zeal for God, is that God's righteousness, of which they were ignorant, is a gift for faith, not an achievement of your moral effort of law-keeping. So that's what they 
missed. It's a deadly zeal if you don't know that righteousness is a gift. So what I want to do in the few minutes I have left is just apply this in two or three ways. Let's apply it to um, theological education and in particular uh, the careful study of Scripture as a means of knowing this. I'm just going to read you Martin Luther. Luther, the early Luther was the person Paul was praying for in this text. My prayer to God is that Luther would be saved. Luther wasn't alive yet. Had he been alive, he would have been saying, my prayer to God is that Martin Luther, who is in rebellion against the righteousness of God as a very devout Catholic, would be saved. And here's what Luther wrote. A single word in Romans 1.17, quote, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, had stood in my way. I hated that word righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they called it, with which God is righteous and punishes unrighteous sinners. Nevertheless, this is the phrase I love, <coughs> I beat, this is his Bible here, I beat importunately upon Paul, <laughs> upon Romans, at that place, Romans 1.17, I beat on that place most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, this is why it's relevant for Bible study, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by the gift of God, namely by faith. He who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. The Reformation was an entrance into the paradise of justification by faith, of people who had been beating themselves up all their lives trying to measure up to a standard of righteousness that they were in rebellion against, and they didn't know it. They, their zeal was not according to knowledge. And so they beat and beat and beat on the Bible until the Bible yielded life. I'm a gift. And he walked into paradise. I hope you're in paradise instead of the miserable prison of legal bondage to law-keeping as a way of standing with God. I hope you live in paradise. Now, what does that have to do with more rigorous theological education? I want pastors who preach that. I want pastors who get that, live that, exult in that glory in the paradise of being justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. That's the kind of pastors I want to be a, a part of breeding. Should they know Greek and Hebrew? <laughs> Let me Let's just keep going with Luther, Luther for just a minute. I love him here. He said, take him or not, I take him. 
without the languages, and he means Greek and Hebrew, without the languages, we could not have received the gospel. It had been so bound up in tradition for so long, they had to plow through that, and they did it with Greek, and they did it with Hebrew. They plowed back to the original meaning, and 1,500 years of falsehood fell away by means of those languages. Without the languages, we could not have received the gospel. Languages are the scabbard that contains the sword of the Spirit. They are the box which contains the priceless jewels of antique thought. They are the vessel that holds the wine. If the languages had not made me positive as to the true meaning of the word, I might have still remained a chained monk engaged in quietly preaching Romish errors in obscurity of a cloister. No sooner did men cease to cultivate the languages than Christendom declined. But no sooner was the torch relighted than this papal owl fled with a shriek. This is typical Luther language. If we, if we neglect the literature, we shall eventually lose the gospel. That's why I care about this. If we neglect the languages and the literature in which they're written, we will eventually lose the gospel. You go to liberal seminaries today, you don't have to study any languages. You don't even have to take a course in New Testament at Yale Divinity School to get an MDiv. It is certain still Luther, it is certain that unless the languages remain, the gospel must finally perish. So my, my one first simple little application is for perhaps, and I don't put anything on you here that God doesn't want you to wear. I've been talking with your pastor. Don't know. He's not sure. I just, I don't know what the plan for you here is. I just hope that you believe in this, whether, it's, whether you lean on Asbury or Southern or whatever, wherever, um, that's fine. But oh, that this church might passionately believe that's true. Love this book and get as much out of it as you can. God doesn't mean for everybody to study Greek and Hebrew. But oh, what a gift to have a pastor who's into the languages as much as yours is. And perhaps that is a pointer to a calling on this church for some kind of nurturing of, of young people on their way into ministry. That's my first application. Second one is much more immediate for everybody. Not only is there a, 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 the knowledge that accords with zeal that implies a serious study of the Bible, that's the first one, there is a knowledge that accords with zeal that keeps a pastor out of bed with his secretary or you, that keeps him from stealing money from the church, or you, from your work. In other words, there are moral powers in this zeal that is according to knowledge, and there is a powerless zeal that can't keep you out of bed with another person's wife, though you may look very religious. Why do I say that? Listen to this text from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. This is the will of God for you, Kenwood. This is the will of God for you, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in holiness and honor, 
not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles, here comes the key phrase, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Isn't that interesting? Paul says the reason those Gentiles have given themselves up to such licentiousness and such libertine sexual misbehavior is because they don't know God, which means there is a zeal that does know God, that is according to knowledge, that will have tremendous moral power sexually in your life. I'm 67, and I thank God for a zeal for God that is relevant to my sexual desires. I have been faithful to Noel. I didn't bring reproach upon my church. Why? God, God's like a massive supernova in my sky. He's infinitely worthy. He's infinitely satisfying. He's everywhere all the time satisfying my soul. You must out-zeal the zeal of your sexual desires. Your sexual desires have zeal and they will take you captive unless you counter them with another zeal that accords with the knowledge of a great gift of righteousness from a great generous God who is infinitely worthy of your allegiance down to your bedsheets. So that's my second application. There is a zeal for God that accords with knowledge, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.4, 4, that will manage your lusts wholly. Lastly, another couple of minutes, real obvious. There is a, a way to minister when you have a zeal that accords with the knowledge of a of a gracious God who freely gives righteousness that you don't work for but receive by faith. There is a way to minister, and Paul illustrates it right here in verses 1 and 2. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So Paul is praying I've only tasted a little bit, David, but it seems to me you believe in prayer. That's a very good thing to have a pastor who believes in prayer. And they, I got prayed over downstairs in the prayer room. He said, this room is the engine that drives this church, and I love to hear that. So here's Paul illustrating what you do if you have a God who's a gracious giver of righteousness. You go to him all the time and ask for things. And then it says in verse 2, for I bear them witness. So you not only talk to God about the men, you talk to the men about God. You see that? I'm praying for them, and I'm witnessing to them. Up, out, boom, boom. That's ministry. That's pastoral. That's, that's everybody's ministry. I go to God for you, and I go to you on his behalf. That's what you should do when you leave here. Do it with your kids. Do it with your spouse. Do it with your neighbors. You go to God for people. God, help them. Help them. Help them. Whatever they need, I want you to help them. And please use me because here I go. And then you go with the witness. That's the, didn't, didn't it say in Acts 6, 
we devoted ourselves to two things, to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Where does that come from? It comes from a zeal that accords with the knowledge that you have a God who has given, he's a giver, ask and you shall receive, so you're gonna pray to a God who's a giver of free righteousness, and now being justified before that God, having a complete, a complete happy, accepted, peaceful, justified standing before that God, you're gonna tell the world about this. You're gonna be a representative of that gift to the world, and that's the third and final application. So the first one was a zeal that accords with knowledge will drive you to real serious dealing with the Scriptures so fully that you want to get some young people just burning for this who go into the ministry and multiply uh, pastors and teachers all over the city and uh, the world. And the third one was there's a zeal that accords with knowledge that has tremendous moral power to keep you pure. And third, there's a zeal that accords with knowledge that will make a minister out of you vertically in prayer for people and horizontally in witness to people. So, Father, take these words, I pray, and wash over this church. And insofar as what I have said is, is relevant for this people, grant that it would have a powerful effect here for the glory of Christ. I ask in his name. Amen.